hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Talking Pits. My name is Felix Prossel and today I'm honored to be accompanied by Dave Tenney, who's the High Performance Director at MLS Club Austin and Steve. David is a true pioneer in our field with nearly two decades in the lead performance roles in the MLS and NBA, but he also spent some time in the collegiate space early on in his career. Last year, he completed his PhD in organizational development and leadership, serving the skill set of high performance directors. I'm really excited to dive into all things high performance with him today and learn from his wealth of experiences. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Thanks for having me on, Felix. It's an honor. Awesome. Dave, to kick us off, um, you're currently the High Performance Director at Austin SC, um, but as I mentioned before, you've been in the field for a very, very long time. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about each of your steps in your professional trajectory and the various roles and responsibilities you carried in them? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start just briefly, you know, the beginning of my career. Um, I had a very... Um, marginal professional playing career um played till my late 20s i went to virginia tech did not finish at virginia tech and tried to play in germany and never really made it and played professionally indoors and you know you never really make it playing professionally indoors but um uh a group you know created some interest in coaching youth soccer as i was still playing um but but also always interested in uh, talent development, athlete development, you know, it, as I was playing, I thought it might go down the route of a academy director down the road. And, um, as I finished playing, um, started volunteer coaching at George Mason university in Virginia, and then went back there and, um, did an interdisciplinary degree in, in, um, coaching science as an undergrad started rolling in the master's program there, but then, um, while doing that was also doing some work with the Washington freedom women's pro team, as well as the George Mason men's and women's teams. Um, at that time, that's probably mid two thousands. And then, um, had the opportunity to go to Kansas city to be fitness coach, goalkeeper coach in 2007. And, um, then had to leave the master's program at George Mason and then went, you know, enrolled in the, um, uh, uh, what's it called? California University of Pennsylvania exercise science master's program uh, online, one of the few online uh, programs back then. And I uh, got the master's from them and um, spent two years at Kansas City as a fitness coach, goalkeeper coach, and then moved on in 2009 to the Seattle Sounders as they were an expansion team and starting an MLS purely on the performance side. No more goalkeeper coaching um, for the first time. And then, you know, from 2009 until I left there in 2017, just that that role kind of evolved and shaped. And I started, you know, by myself in 2009. I mean, ironically enough, in 2010, I brought on, you know, Jordan Webb as an intern, who's now, you know, the head sports scientist for U.S. soccer. Um, and he was with me for about a year. Um, and then the next year had, you know, two interns, 2011 now, which is, you know, um, Chad Kalarsik, who's with me again in in, in uh, Austin, and then Garrison Draper, who's in Miami, were my two interns in 2011. And it just kind of grew. Um, you know, we talk now about the high performance model, you know, but at that time, you know, right around 2010, that didn't really exist. And I think, you know, what's the 
the roles that the departments grow in response to kind of demand and the environment they're in. And, um, you know, if, if I go from 2010 to having Jordan Webb as an intern to 2017, where I was a you know, high performance director with Austin, uh, or sorry, with Seattle, it was really a case of, you know, a single person until I left, you know, we, you know, we kind of had sports science analytics performance all under one umbrella there um, at that time when I left and in a staff of about seven, maybe, you know, for the first team, uh, you know, we won MLS cup in 2016 and I just had this kind of desire and drive to try something different. Cause I was in my ninth year in Seattle in 2017. And so I um, had the opportunity to go to the Orlando magic to be, High performance director, and again managing performance, sports science, the medical side, nutrition, psychology—you know, kind of under that umbrella in Orlando—and uh, that was extremely challenging. Great experience, um, totally different sport, obviously, because my whole life as a player, coach, and performance person had been spent in in one sport, soccer. And um, you know, I think I kind of drew from that experience, which we might talk about later, was that. You know, your passion and love for the sports you're working in does matter. Um, spent three years with Orlando and then had the opportunity to to come here to Austin to be high performance director again um, with a coach, you know, a, a set of coaches here that I now I've, I'd actually coached myself as as players, right? So we have a head coach, Josh Wolf, and then the first two assistants, now Dave Yarno and Terry Boss who just joined us was head coach for Oregon state. Um, three guys that I all coached between 2007 and, you know, 2010. Um, so, you know, ironically enough that, you know, I've kind of gone full circle and now I'm kind of the, the old guy helping, you know, manage with, uh, with coaches that I had, that I had coached myself. So, um, you know, and, and, and again, it's grown and evolved to here with Austin, you know, it's kind of managing a department that consists of, your performance coaches and your sports scientists, all of your medical staff, psychologist, nutritionist, um, and then the analytics team as well. So, yeah, definitely an interesting journey. It's funny that everything comes back full circle, as you mentioned. Um, you you had alluded to it, but really, um, all those roles quasi existed, um, but more recently, they've become a true high performance model and in, in pretty much the majority of uh, professional organizations um sports scientists data analytics department etc cetera, etc cetera. um in your own words you know you spend a lot of time discussing this in your dissertation what makes this model so important and and you know what really you mentioned kind of the environment what really led each organization to evolve into a model like this more recently yeah no it's a good question you know and i think I mean, I think across the board, we're recognizing this as, as a society, but, you know, definitely within elite level sport is that as we talk about performance, coaching, sports science, um, the medical side, there's, there's the overlap. There's no true boundaries, right? As we look at decision-making areas of expertise, skills, right? There's, there's, the skill sets and, and the boundaries of, their, of those roles are, are overlapping. And even from performance coaching to sport coaching, right? There, there's an overlap in skill sets. And to me, the, the high performance model is really embracing the overlap between performance and medical, between performance coach and sports scientists. Um, 
the the information, the data you're looking at, there's overlap, right? Um, you can have one data set that medical sports science and performance coaches and sports coaches all look at and look at a little bit different ways. Um, but, you know, to me, the high performance model is really embracing the way that, that um, we view those relationships amongst all these different practitioners. Right. And so we talk about, you know, you can have a, in my mind, it's this, it's a shift from, you know, a multidisciplinary group to an interdisciplinary group to a transdisciplinary group, which I think I talked about, you know, within my PhD, where you can have a multidisciplinary team where people, you know, you, you create a staff that have lots of different experts in different areas and they're multidisciplinary. They kind of stay within their own silos and they stay within their own boundaries. Then there's, I think, this, you know, the sense of interdisciplinary where there's an, an overlap of skill sets and over an overlap of, of, sharing of information and in the decision-making process. Um, and there's the acknowledgement that we are one team, we're an interdisciplinary team and we, and we're embracing the overlap. And then I think the final step is as a concept of transdisciplinarity where we understand the skill sets needed within a high performance model. And we're going to bring in certain types of people and we're going to allow for this kind of emergence of different roles that might be free of traditional boundaries as we talk about decision making right and so to me that's you know that's the coolest place to go and then you'll see these positions and roles grow that didn't really exist before right so i mean in my in my case you know if someone were to look at me on a daily basis they might think that i'm operating almost as an assistant coach almost as a high performance director because i have so much overlap with the, with the coaches um there should always be a, you know a a embracing of overlap of skills. And if you look in the rehab setting between your performance coaches and your athletic trainers and physical therapists, um, when it comes to driving return to play and what's going on on the field and final stage um, programming on the field, there should this be this embracing of overlap. And, you know, so for me, there is, you know, that is what the high performance model gets at, you know, like as, as an example, you know, an end stage rehab person, it could be a physical therapist. It could be athletic trainer. It could be a performance coach traditionally, but it's someone who understands the demands of a sport who, under, who understands the physiology, who understands, you know, good rehab principles and trying to build programs as, as an athlete is about to get back on the field that really closely mirror, not just a soccer player, but maybe even more how, this certain position wants to play under this coach in these types of games that they have upcoming. Um, and that takes a lot of understanding and a lot of kind of interdisciplinarity in terms of um, uh, creating programming for what a, that athlete might need. I really like that. I mean, you, you mentioned that um, some people might view your role almost as an assistant coach, almost as a high performance director, a, a true blend between the two, yeah. just because of the nature of your setup. How much has your background and your path, um, you know, playing soccer in the ACC at Virginia Tech, venturing out to the best country in the world, Germany, to play the game, um, and, and continuing to be a goalkeeper coach thereafter? How much has that helped you? be that point of person between the two and, and truly understand um, both the performance side and then the more technical side of the game. Yeah. It's been huge. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, and then I think there was my, my second year in KC, we lost actually, you know, Chris Henderson, who's now the GM for Inter Miami was assistant coach. 
in 2007, he left, we didn't replace him. So in 2008, I was actually an assistant coach, you know, with, uh, with the Kansas city group as well. And, um, yeah, I think those experiences give you good perspective on everyone's role and, and the sport and, and the athletes. Um, I don't think you, I don't think you necessarily have to have gone through my experience to have that understanding necessarily, but, um, the, you know, you have to understand the athletes and the coaches and how the athletes and coaches see performance in the training process. And, you know, it's funny, you know, this has not been on our script for this call at all, but I mean, I'm just finishing up masters in tactical periodization, you know, currently. And, and one of the big pieces of, of that is, you know, the training process with athletes is understanding what the athletes are feeling. Right. And I think sometimes we don't actually under, you know, we don't spend a lot of time talking about what are the athletes feeling. And if you've been a coach, if you've been a player and you've been a coach and you've been in certain situations um, as either of them, you will understand what a player coach is feeling where if you haven't been in those situations and maybe you're a sports scientist coming fresh out of college, having not been in those environments, you're, it's going to be more difficult for you to have those, you know, the experience or knowing what, what the athletes are truly feeling before a big game or after three straight losses, you know, or, you know, after they've been ripped by the coach, you know, what, what is a player really then feeling and, and, and how do you interact with them? You know, I think that's, that's the big advantage of like, a lot of times we talk about, you know, we, we do a lot of prescription right in our role. We're always trying to prescribe what does an athlete need? Um, I will always argue that the most important thing is understanding not what the athlete, what we need to prescribe to athlete, but what should we expect their response to be, right? And that those are really two different things, right? The prescription versus the response. And I think understanding what athletes have gone through at times will help us understand what their response will be um, far better having had you know certain experiences ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, we know you know, based on wellness questionnaires and, and literature like that, that given the same external um, loads and training, you may not always elicit the same response. Um, you know, athletes do not perceive um, the same external load in, in the same manner um, over time and things like that. But I think an interesting point that you just brought up is that a lot of this doesn't even have to be quantitatively uh, collected in the sense of data collection. But I think what you're alluding to is basically soft skills that, um, you know, you, you pick up in conversations with, with athletes, build relationships with them, having gone through the same process yourself, you understand what that athlete feels like and, and how that might affect um, his or her performance. Um, in, in your dissertation, I think you're referring to relationship builder as one of those skill sets for a, a high performance director. Um, and, you know, in addition, we also mentioned strategic thinkers and quality control managers um, as other fundamental components of a high performance director. Um, how can anybody that wants to be very well versed in those areas um, develop, knowing that, like you said, maybe fresh out of college, athletes may respond in a way that a practitioner is not cognizant of. So, in your experience, how did you grow those skill sets? Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I, I think, again, our roles, the, this high-performance director role, it's, it's an extremely 
experiential role. You know, I think it values, you know, it's, it was really interesting, I think, through the, the, the actual interviews, you know, because my, my uh, dissertation of being, you know, a, a series of qualitative interviews, um, it was a qualitative research paper. And, you know, I used semi-structured interviews with a, you know, 10, 10 high-performance directors. And the, you know, the really interesting thing that, you know, was not intentional as I, you know, as being a qualitative research paper, you know, you don't start with hypothesis. You, you know, you have a series of, of semi-structured questions and then you kind of see what emerges out of your data, you know, so... Clearly, I wasn't looking for this going in, nor should I have been looking for this going in. But the really interesting thing, you know, of my 10 um, different directors of different ages, of different backgrounds, I think the youngest, you know, was in the early 30s. The latest was around 50. Um, there's There was a, um, even within those 10, you could see there was there was this evolutionary pattern, you know, that kind of came out of the, the discussions. And... Um, you know, the performance facilitator concept I found was more accentuated in the older directors. And, and I, you know, it was interesting that each one of the really, really good high performance directors um, had, had gone through this phase uh, personally where they, they had a need less to be a practitioner and more to be a facilitator. It was no longer about them. Right. And so it was really interesting that those in their early thirties were still very much in like, you know, in this mindset of I need to be accepted by the coach. I need my word to be accepted by the coach I, or GM or whomever this person of, of leadership I work with might be. Maybe it's an AD. Um, I need to be acknowledged that I'm a, a domain expert and the really experienced ones knew that, I'm facilitating a decision-making process. I'm guiding a process. I am no longer a practitioner. I am now trying to facilitate this staff that I've created to, to help collect information, analyze information, make good decisions, but I'm in the role of a facilitator. And that was a really interesting, I think, you know, kind of evolutionary pattern that came out of the, you know, the data collected of these directors in, in different ages. Um, so, so that was very much, I think, the performance facilitator side. Um, I think again, every every experienced performance director I interviewed, I mean, all discussed the you know increased need to manage up, and so the building relationships were, you know, I think one of the most misunderstood areas. And what we do is managing up, right, and managing our head coach, managing our GM, managing our president, you know, helping them understand what we're trying to do. Um, uh, how we are affecting the decision-making process in the organization, right? So that whole relationship builder, I found they just, between the players, the the head coach, GM, the rest of their staff, like they were just, they, they were able to just be connectors, right? I think there was this, again, this evolution of being a practitioner to being a connector where I'm connecting all these different pieces and people within the organization up, down, you know, then horizontally across and we're connecting them. Um, I think that, you know, there's some really, you know, there's so much wisdom of some of the older directors that I interviewed and, you know, and, and a lot of the consensus that came out from the older ones is, you know, you, you have to have, um, 
good judgment, right? And some of the older ones said, okay, I am, I am no longer a person, nor do I want to be a person that does rehab, that does warm-ups, that does strength test sessions, that they might not be a medical person. But I can, I can sense and I can judge a good session versus a bad session, a good strength session, a good rehab session. I can tell when a strength program is good or it's not good. Right. And so I have that ability to be a quality control person where are we doing work at a high enough standard across the department? And, you know, and then you're put in this position where, okay, if it's not good enough, well, then I have to move that person on and I have to bring in someone else in that, that can do that. Um, and that's a really, really, um, important piece. And then, you know, and, and then the last piece, you know, as you know, in your role where you're always getting hit up by different technology people, different technology providers, different data, you know, new, new sort of data sources coming in, um, new ways of doing things, new ways of innovation in our field. And so as from a strategic thinking standpoint, you have to not just know what's working now, but where, where are these teams going to be in five years? Right. And so you're always trying to stay one step ahead of everyone else and say, okay, this is what we're doing now, but in a year, what's the next big thing going to be, you know, without being bogged down, without, without getting lost and trying everything that comes across your board, right. Having that strategic, again, it's, it's a, I think it's a feel for having that, that strategic thinking ability to know, okay, this is what we're using now, but you know, in six months from now, in a year from now, are we doing, you know, like one of the big things now, as you see with catapult is the merging of video and, uh, and, and player tracking. Right. Is that is that going to be the next big thing? How do I is there going to be a new way to communicate things to my coaches? Um, do I want to use a um, out of the box AMS system or should I be building my own with our computer science group? Right. There's different different little things like that, that as you build out your department that, you know, from a strategic standpoint, this is where we have to go because this is where this field is going. Right. So I think all those different areas, you know, the performance facilitator, you know, relationship builder, strategic thinker, quality control, those are all real core competencies of, you know, this role that um they really came out, you know, and and again, I would say just the quality of the actual participants in my research were such a high level that it, you know, these things came out like really clearly, which was fantastic for the uh for the whole doctoral um programs. Yeah, really really awesome. I mean I, I really like how Basically, the method that served for your dissertation is the same method that you would apply in those conversations with the athletes as well. Um, so, you know, I think that's a, that's a really nice aspect about the qualitative approach that you've taken is, you know, just like you can interview high-performance directors, it, it's really the, the same skill set that you apply day-to-day, maybe not in written form, but, you know, in, in, in verbal form. So, um Personally, I can relate a lot to what you just alluded to, you know, being in the first year as a director of sports science, that mindset of being becoming a performance facilitator really um, became true for me because um, I was always the, basically the sports scientist of the team and, and just doing the work. Um, but all of a sudden, you know, we're lucky to be surrounded by a lot of master students and interns nowadays to help us scale basically those operations across multiple teams and but my job to uh, you know empower each and every single one of them to be able to be a good um, sports scientist in yeah. each of those other teams so um yeah it's very 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 interesting um dave you left um 
MLS for a little bit. I uh, went to Orlando Magic um, as a high performance director there, but then went back to the MLS. Um, you already alluded to a little bit um, with it about your passion for soccer. While you were in the NBA, um, what did you learn about the similarities between the two leagues, NBA and MLS? And, you know, is there anything that you since then applied from the NBA um, at your time here now in Austin? Yeah. And also, I think it's it's funny because there's a lot in my research that, you know, came, kind of came out within this discussion, right? Like the relationship builder was huge. And what I learned was that the types of relationship building <clears throat> in um, in people in our role vary by the league, right? So uh, it was really interesting that, you know, oftentimes, again, in the research I did, Major League Baseball teams, Major League Baseball teams, these you know, performance directors, high performance directors, whatever the role is, VP of performance or, you know, VP of health and, you know, medicine or whatever it is. Um, you've got, you could have seven, eight teams over the whole country um, with a center hub where the minor league, you know, where, where, you know, your minor league training facility that, you know, that the pro players or the Major League Baseball guys train out of in, in preseason is kind of your rehab hub. And that's where a lot of your rehab staff is. And your strength coaches everywhere. And, and you must be a relationship builder internally. Right. And um, the NBA ended up being totally different in that you are, you, you had to be a relationship builder with your, with external relationship builder. Um, a lot of my role in the NBA was, was talking to agents, which was a really, really different space for me to be in. Um, and our GM would say to me that, you know, in anyone in my role since that they never want to have an agent call them asking about the health status of a player, because I have developed a relationship with all of them enough that they'll pick up the phone and call me because the president doesn't work in that space. He would just ask me a player status. And so it's far better to eliminate that, that link. And it saves time for the, for the president, if the agents call me. <clears throat> so if a player has an injury or, you know, um, there's an acute injury or there's a rehab setting or even, you know, something as simple as, in you know, right before preseason starts, you want to know what shoes all these NBA guys are wearing. And so you have to call the agents to almost negotiate what shoes they might be wearing based on whatever, you know, injury history they might have with ankles, fifth met, you know, whatever it is. And these are really new things that I never actually thought, you know, my role would be. Um, so from that standpoint, as, as a person that then had to build relationships with external stakeholders, I think that was a, a new thing. Um, and, and interesting, but again, as I got through it, I realized, you know, okay, this, this is not why I originally started this field was to talk to agents about their players and where their players are with their injuries, but really important. And obviously, as we know in the NBA, um, the there is an increase in, in external stakeholders of people that players might pay to come in, and you know whether it be a performance coach or a therapist or whatever. And and it is up to us as leaders in the you know in the high performance medical space to have relationships with those people as well. Um, some clubs actually hire the superstars, athletic trainer, specialist, physical therapist on their staff. Um, just so that person becomes an internal stakeholder instead of an external stakeholder. And, uh, and it's a really different environment. Um, 
Having said that, I think what was really, really cool about the NBA was the level of individualization that each different athlete in the NBA gets, right? And you have 15 players in your roster and you can have five or six assistant coaches and you'll have a performance staff that might have two strength coaches and three, four, five medical practitioners. Um, you'd have a nutritionist, you'd have a sports psychologist and, um, there's so much individual work that happens in the NBA where you might have a 10:30 practice and at starting at nine o'clock, these young players will come in and do a little 20 minute shooting session prior to practice. And maybe it's paired with a strength session and maybe it's paired, you know, and then they might go eat after and um, each player has his own assistant coach. He kind of works with for these sessions all year. And then most of the players have their own therapist or athletic trainer. They work with all year. They might prefer you know, one or the other strength coach. And so you're really trying to build these little kind of mini teams around each different athlete um, for the whole season um, that you can actually individualize things to a level that you know just doesn't exist in soccer, where you might have 25 players and you know three, you know, three assistant coaches, right? Um, so that was really cool to see and something that I had not experienced, you know, within, within the sport of, of soccer before I'm really, and really effective too. Right. So every, every young player might every practice day, get a 20 minute skill session followed by a five, six minute little video. And then might go in and get a 10, 15 minute, you know, you know, let's say 15, 20 minute lift in after, and then go in and, uh, and, uh, the chef or nutritionist has their own, you know, their own individualized breakfast for them. And that's a level of individualization that is, you know, pretty unique. Um, but then the goal was, Hey, can we take whatever your metric is? Can we take this 20 year old who's a, you know, 30% three point shooter and make them a 37% three point shooter by the time they're done with their rookie contract and then their value increases by X. And, um, that thought process was really, you know, I think unique, you know, to the league and really, you know, kind of taught me a lot. That's very interesting. I, I remember um, coming to a facility in December and, and just seeing a couple athletes um, going through a workout. Um, you know, that's something that we talk about at um, Pitt here a lot is the collegiate system obviously more or less requires you to have all student athletes train at the same time. If that's, for instance, in the weight room, surely because of logistics, you know, uh, training's got to be done by noon so that um, yeah. student athletes can join classes thereafter. Um, so it, it's really, really impressive to see and, and hear um, the level of individualization you're referring to. Um, you know, with those discrepancies in systems between and and environments, let's say the NBA, MLS, which might fall in between the M NBA and and the collegiate world, um, what would your advice be for organizations that? are aiming to implement the high performance model, knowing that the environments are vastly diverse. And yeah. especially at the collegiate level, I think you see power five schools picking up more and more this model, but it's not quite as common as it is in professional organizations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a challenge, I think, because the NCA, you know, kind of the NCA structure, it makes it more difficult. Um, I mean, what I will say too, which I think is interesting is most college practitioners come into our space and, it, and at first, you know, it's, it seems like it's pure chaos, right? Like, because 
Because if you do things right in terms of an individual individualization standpoint, people are kind of coming and going and, you know, they're staying, you know, this guy stays out 10 minutes extra in the field because he's doing work with his coach. The other guys are coming in, they're starting their lift, you know, and I know college practitioners that have joined our staff have, you know, kind of, they're, they're just kind of mystified and like stunned at first because it's like, there's no, there's no real beginning to end to practice necessarily. There's no real beginning to end to lift. Everyone's treatment time is totally different. And so it's really, you're, you're trying to create this, you know, this structure, this environment where everyone is getting what they need when they need it. But, but you've got to, I mean, quite honestly, you've got to embrace the chaos at some level because there, there will be something from, from the outside. It's going to, you know, um, I mean, our current sports scientist was at, you know, USC football, you know, Kyle Voigt and, you know, his first take on it was like, wow, this, this just looks chaotic. Cause I'm used to like, Hey, here's our team lift. And we all go in and we all look at the lift up on the board. And, you know, then we talk about, this is what everyone's going to do and boom. Okay. Everyone goes out and goes and does it. And that just doesn't really exist, you know, and, you know, in the professional setting, maybe in football, like, I, I don't know, you know, I've, I've not been in an NFL setting, but, you know, clearly in the, in an NBA and um, MLS setting where you can individualize there, there has to be an embracing, I think of, you know, this chaotic environment. Um, but also you're trying to make sure everyone gets what they need. And so if you have, let's say between your performance and medical, you have eight to nine staff members that can all have their hands on guys, coach guys, you still, you're not working in a one-to-one -one relationship. So you want to have guys filter through at different times so they can get the individual attention they need. You know, and I think that that's where, again, the, the relationship of performance to medical becomes really important because, you know, I think our staff does an amazing job of um, doing these sessions with these guys as they go through the career, they're a little bit beat up and they, they might have, you know, quite a few, the normal strength session might be very provocative to certain athletes based on, you know, whatever orthopedic issues, degenerative issues a guy might have, but the medical staff can come in and they can create something that's very similar to the same type loading the athletes should be getting. Um, and they might need that really one-on-one -on -one coaching, um, and again, not all 25 guys can come in the weight room at one time and, and be able to get that, that attention. So, um, we have at any given time, a group of athletes that would have modified lifts in the weight room that, that are based on, you know, injury history and, you know, degenerative changes that athletes might have that, you know, our medical staff would come in and kind of guide them through that particular, um, session, strength session on that particular day, which. I think is, you know, high level practitioner, um, high level practice and, you know, something that I think that we do well, but, but, it, but it's an inherent part of the high performance model as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember, um, I think this is right that one of your earlier or first tasks at Austin was actually designing or helping design the facility that you're operating out of now. Um, and, and seeing it, it was really impressive because I think you made a lot of, um, very conscious decisions to help facilitate those types of interactions that you're referring to on an individual level. Um, 
what were some of the unique aspects that you incorporated into designing that facility and and how did that set up your staff and that working structure between your staff that you're referring to now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the f- first and foremost, you know, to me, the most important piece is that you're trying to, again, not have the silos of, of performance and sports medicine as much as you can. So it's, you know, we have one office where all of our performance coaches, sports scientists, um, medical staff, we're all in one room in our high performance room, we call it. Um, our director of sports medicine's office is on one side of that room, feeding directly into um, the training room. And then obviously my office is at the other side. So we are at either ends of this office with, you know, I think 10, 10 desk spaces, you know, for our performance and medical for the first and second teams. Um, we want the, you know, the athletic training space is essentially like the center point of the, of the whole player side of the facility as well. So we want that to be a place where as players go in and out of the, uh, you know, of the, the meal room, as they come in for the day, like that we can't help but see them run into them. So we can have a touch point with them from the medical side really early. Um, Cause there's nothing worse than a guy, you know, is carrying something and he comes in the, the, you know, the locker room and, the medical staff never sees him. And then the coaches ask what his status is and you got to go find him. And, you know, players are really good at disappearing from your site when you, uh, when they want to. Um, and then obviously train, you know, training room <clears throat> and uh, weight room are side by side. So again, you have this flow. It's really easy for a medical person to start in the training room, come in the weight room to work with that. They go back to the training room. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the flow of that is, is quite easy. Um, you know, and then I think then off the wing of that is, you know, as you saw, we've got a, what we call a recovery space that has a, a quiet space with meeting rooms, massage therapy space. Um, we've got, you know, kind of six anti-gravity chairs with Normatec boots there. We've got an altitude room that we use for, for conditioning cryo that's off to the side, but intentionally like a very quieter space so that, you know, people do have a space to go into to kind of shut down um, and focus on recovery when they want to as well. So um, I think those are all the kind of the different pieces as we kind of laid out and, and, you know, and flow. And I think, you know, I think the flow of everything is, is really good. And, and I think sometimes when you don't have that opportunity to help design a facility, you know, uh, you know, right from the start that oftentimes you might get what you want, but the flow is not, right um so for us i think what we have in the space is just as important as how we're able to manage and direct athletes through the space and in the flow they have on a daily basis so you know it, it came out really well i mean there's always things where you wish you had a little bit more space here more space there but you know we have uh we're extremely happy with the way the the whole space turned out yeah, it was really impressive to see. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think there's a lot of parallels between um, basically the, the layout of common living rooms nowadays and, and your setup. You know, it's no longer kitchen, living room, dining yeah. room separated. It's an, an open layout. It's very similar. I really like that. Um, you know, really smart setup with the, with the daily touch point for the athletic trainer. Um, it, it forces people to communicate at the end of the day. So there, there's yeah. no way around it, which is, which is great. 
Um, you had mentioned the recovery room. Um, you had mentioned a couple um, performance aspects. Two of the things that, of course, come to mind when I think about Austin in the middle of the summer and then competing in the MLS is it's really hot um, and you play a lot of games. I think in the last three weeks or so, you've had seven games, something on the order of that. And, and obviously, you travel a lot for those. Um, you know, conditions are hot. Um, what are some of the things you and your staff consider when there's match congestion and you travel a lot and um, how do you combat, you know, the common heat associated drop-off and physical performance? Yeah. I mean, obviously we, we, and I do strongly believe that we try to use the heat as much of a advantage for us as possible. I mean, obviously we will be acclimatized to the heat in ways that teams coming in are not, you know, unless it's, you know, Houston or Dallas or, Orlando or someone like that. Um, so we see it as an advantage as long as we can manage it appropriately. Uh, I think you need less training time once, you know, once it's consistently over 90 degrees, I think there's, you're, you're really, now you're really trying to look at, um, heat exposure. You're trying to limit heat exposure. Um, so we push training up to nine you know, over large portions of the season. We're training at 10 and then, Actually, you know, I think this this upcoming week is now the time when we're switching back to nine o'clock. It's it's actually been relatively mild, and we've not had a lot of days in the nineties yet here in Austin, even though it's you know the last day of May. So this year is has been a little bit more mild than normal, but um, we will push training time up. You know, I think it's um it's I think one of the things we learned as a staff our first year is that um, exposure to heat, long term exposure to heat matters. You know, and, it, and it's and it's interesting as we look at the the research. There's a lot of research on you know kind of acute heat exposure and you know mitigating the effects of of acute heat exposure. Um, very few on taking a group of athletes who did not grow up in this environment and then putting them in a really hot environment for six months. Like there's very little research on that. You know, and what are the physiological adaptations or outcomes, or is there limitations to you know, the, the whole acclimatizing effect, you know, that, that happens with athletes. I mean, clearly they will acclimatize to heat, but will a, you know, will a Scandinavian midfielder actually fully acclimatize as much as a Argentinian one or, or not. Right. So I think it's, it's, th those are really interesting questions that I don't fully have the answers to, and, and they don't appear to be very you know prevalent in the research. Um, but, but again, we have to maintain that advantage as much as possible. So, you know, we do very, it's a long season. We don't want to, you know, we don't want to, to burden the athletes, but, you know, we do match day minus one hydration testing. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because now we're at this point where it's really, you know, of our 25 guys, we probably have four to five guys that are always the ones that tend to be you know, in a dehydrated, um, just based on probably lifestyle. We have a group of guys where it's never an issue. You know, so I think again, you can question how often should we be doing hydration testing? We feel like match day minus one is less burdensome across the board from a staffing and player compliance standpoint. So, um, we do that. I think again, we've identified the guys that struggle with hydration. Um, and you know, they're, anyone that comes out dehydrated match day minus one, as they come out of their our video session pregame, they're already getting 
you know, an electrolyte drink um, right away and then giving them to take home. Um, we do do heavy, you know, HRV type assessments as well and can really see, you know, it's interesting. The players that tend to be really more sympathetically dominant through HRV over the course of a really hot summer. Those guys need a lot more recovery. You really have to watch heat exposure with those athletes. Um, so through HRV um, assessments, we're able to to look at them. Um, I think that's really good coach buy-in. You know, the, the length of sessions will decrease really quickly. We'll try to streamline all of the coaching so that there's, you know, the worst thing you can do when it's, you know, 100 degrees out is have these long sessions with lots of coaching where, the, you know, the players are standing in the heat, not actually performing. Um, so, um, again, I would say like nothing earth shattering, but I think just having some, some clear guidelines that we're doing once it, once that it's quite warm. Um, and we found as if, and if you do those things, then, then it's a huge advantage, you know, and most conditioning that a player might need, you know, we might actually go in and use the altitude altitude room we have, um, Again, because they might be an hour on the field, get them out of the heat, but then the India altitude room to do a top off conditioning. Um, so, I think you know just just things like that. But again, I think it's more. It's definitely a less is more approach, you know, to heat exposure as we get into these months. We will naturally have a benefit living in this heat that someone who's not living in it has. You just have to make sure they're not out walking in it all day, or they're not, you know, out just sitting in the sun during training. So. Otherwise, you'll get a you will have an advantage. Yeah, really, really interesting. So it sounds like um, basically hydration testing and HRV data is being interpreted prior to film, and then decision. You know that gives you wiggle room to yeah. make decisions and, and implement stuff yeah, before and, training. And I guess also we have a whole cooling protocol as well. I think it's been really interesting where we've you know paired with a couple of doctors looking at um using kind of pre-session cooling, right? So, um, you know, we use cooling vests and we'll actually have, you know, guys wear cooling at times, even like the first jog of the dynamic warm-up, they actually have cooling vests on, you know, cause you want to keep their core temperature down. A lot of it is, you know, it's core temperature regulation, right? So, um, players that really struggle and oftentimes these kind of sympathetically driven athletes will have, um, you know, this increased core body temperature they can't regulate far quicker than everyone else. Um, so, you know, we, we do use cooling vests and even we've had guys in really hot games, um, home games where they'll do the whole dynamic warmup with the cooling vest on just to try to regulate core body temperature. Um, and some athletes really embrace it and they want to wear it all the time until they have to take it off to play just so that, cause they know that that helps them. Um, some guys don't like to do it. You find people that grow up in really warm climates. They don't tend to need it as much, but you know, Definitely some of our Scandinavian players have embraced, you know, wearing the cooling vest. Um, Scandinavian players and Eastern Europeans um, tend to embrace the cooling vest more than the, uh, you know, some of the others. So. Yeah, I can imagine that. I, I love that. I mean, this is a perfect example of um, something that's practically relevant, but it's comparatively um, easy. You know, yeah. I, I think a lot of times sports science and, you know, or high performance in general, has a bad rap in terms of overcomplicating things or just doing more and more and using more technology, but kind of losing that practical relevance and meaningfulness. But this is a really, really interesting example. Um, of, you know, using something that is meaningful that we know has direct implications on performance and then and maximizing assessments in, in that regard. 
if there is travel, um, so let's say you you go elsewhere where it's colder, um, say you have to fly to Minnesota, for instance, and it's maybe not as hot, and you come back and it's it's really hot again. Um, are there any special considerations for that? And together with you know maybe um, sleep loss that occurs because of flying back late at night or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the travel piece is it's. Uh... That's a whole nother, I think, discussion, you know, because I think now we live in this world where we are, we do actually have charter flights. And so now you can actually program your travel times. You have far more flexibility and, and you know, ability to decide when you want to travel. Um, again, we, we love our training space. We don't like to stay overnight if we don't have to. Having said that, we've also seen, you know, when you come back, if you choose to fly home after a game in Seattle or, you know, Seattle, Portland, LA, you're coming back at, you know, three o'clock in the morning. And so you really have to, there, there's a, there's a, you know, then effect fatigue that takes place, you know, that you have to account for. Um, and those are some of the decisions I think we've been trying to make, you know, we've, we had very few midweek games um, in the previous two seasons. And now this year, there's been a lot more match congestion. So we have actually stayed overnight at a couple places that we would not have last year just because we've got like Wednesday, Saturday, we play Wednesday away. And, you know, rather than flying back, you know, the, the advantage is if you fly back <clears throat> right after the game, even if you get in at three o'clock in the morning, you can still come in the next day and later and just get some sort of recovery stimulus, right? If you leave the next morning, it can be hard to kind of get some of the recovery work that you want. Um, so it's, um, you know, again, I think you've got to, you've got to look at your calendar and look at, you know, kind of your match congestion where things fall and make decisions, whether it's better to be back in our space or whether it's be, whether it's more suitable to, to stay overnight. Um, and I think also we, you've got the, the same going in, you know, I think we've re we, when I joined the league, you know, there was a period a lot of times where if you, for every time zone you'd travel, you'd want to go one day before, right? So if you're going, you know, West Coast to East Coast or vice versa, you might go for a Saturday game. You might leave Wednesday or Thursday for a Saturday game. And again, I think part of it is the charter, but I think also part of it now is that everyone's training facilities are so good that once you leave your training facility, you might not have access to all the different you know, special things you have if you're going in a hotel practicing at a college practice field somewhere, you know, or, you know, the opponent's, um, you know, training field, you might not have access to any of those things. So um, that does affect, you know, your choices around travel as well. And, you know, we typically travel to the next game as late as we possibly can, just because we have access to so much, you know, recovery modalities, food, treatment um, in our own training facility. So, even when we go to places like altitude, you know, when our two altitude places tend to be only one time zone over, you know, at Denver and Salt Lake. And so we actually fly in day of game for those um, just because we don't want, you know, there's not necessarily a need to be exposed to altitude. If we can leave at nine o'clock in the morning and we get to that, you know, Denver or Salt Lake by 11 in the morning, you know, and then we have, have a meal have lunch and then have pregame meal and, you know, and then play and come back. And we've actually been from a running standpoint perspective, tremendously successful. Um, we have, you know, we have had wins at Salt Lake and 
at uh, Colorado flying in day of game. And so again, that's the advantage of, you know, when it's, it's, you know, the advantages of being in your training facility, the advantages of uh, charter flights and then having, you know, a coaching staff that's willing to, you know, experiment with that as well. So. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, I think most evidence points towards a couple of weeks, two weeks for an acclimatization period to altitude. So, um, most of the time, almost always, you don't have those two weeks. So, um, you, know, you can avoid any fatigue that accumulates as a, as a consequence of adapting in those early days. Um, the arrival on the day of the game, um, which you know, the sentiment, it seems to have paid off, which is which is really interesting to hear. Um, awesome. Well, again, you know, it's it's been really great to hear from you about you know your experiences. Um, from all the way the early phases of the career, how that shapes you into the practitioner you are, um, your aspirations or your thoughts around the high performance model and how that has um, kind of set up everything that you're doing at Austin now from a working structure of your staff, but also facility perspectives and, and how you approach the day-to-day -day operations like that. Um, as we're wrapping up, um, what would your last bit of advice be for any up and coming professionals in our field um, you know, selfishly, we have a lot of master's students and friends here that uh, would like to be in a position like yours at some point and, and have similar skills. What would your advice be for individuals that are new to the field? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's funny because we have this discussion all the time within our, our staff, which is, uh, you know, obviously a group of us that are different levels of, you know, different ages and um, types and amounts of experience. Um to me, I think one of the most important things to understand is that, you know, elite sport is a, it has high complexity, right? It's a very, very complex environment. And so I think we always talk about complex systems theory, um, dynamic systems theory, things like that, that are really important, I think, to, to understand, right? Because I, my sense sometimes is you can come out of the sports science field and you can be very linear in your thinking. Right. And like, again, when it comes to the prescription where you, you end up thinking that, okay, I'm, I'm out there and I'm looking for this perfect formula I can apply in the next setting. You know, and I think it's really important for young practitioners to understand that, you know, this environment is highly complex. It is not linear at all. What works in one environment doesn't work in another environment. What worked for you five years ago probably won't work for you today. Um, and I oftentimes think that, you know, young practitioners can, can be in pursuit of that. Right. And I think like, you know, that's, that research, research helps inform for sure. Um, but every environment is unique in the types of athletes you have and the way that coaches like to coach and, um, and the way that the sport might be played in any given league. And, um, and that dictates, how you train again, how athletes will respond to your training and the types of things you will be allowed to do or not be allowed to do based on the coaches and, you know, in the group of, of athletes you have. So I think that's to me, to me, the ones that have, you know, the, the young interns that have succeeded the most have shown this kind of adaptability to this environment that, that those who have struggled have, you know, have not shown. Right. And that it's, um, but I think, I do think the starting point is understanding the sport. And if you understand the sport, um, 
you know, and, and obviously our sport in soccer is, is really different because it's so global by nature. It's incredibly global. There's so many different cultures that play it and so many different cultures have their own take on it, whether it's your German or Spanish or Brazilian or Argentinian um, or American, each approach is so different. Our starting point has to be to understand where all of our athletes or in our coaching staff might come from, because that will define what their approach is. Um, but what I can say for hundred percent is that a linear approach where I prescribe something and I expect every athlete will, will respond like X that does not exist. You know, and I think the earlier we understand that and the better off, you know, we will, we will be. Um, and I also think again, and from the sports science side, it's really easy to get caught up on purely looking at the physical side. Right. And I think that's, that's a big mistake that, you know, people that come out of sports science programs that want to work in our, in our field is that the prioritization of the physical or everything else is, you know, again, it's, it's easy to, to then fall into this reductionist approach when I really have to look at how are these athletes been leading, uh, being loaded cognitively, what's their emotional status, you know, and that's what I found is sometimes as players are fatigued and we're trying to then prescribe what the right exercises are under fatigue, the emotional side at times can be equally as important as the physical side. What do they mean from an emotional standpoint? And I think that, I think that resonates with coaches as well, because coaches feel that, that like you have to address the emotional side, even if they don't always know that or can verbalize that. So I think that's a, you know, I think all those areas are really important for young practitioners to, to understand if, you know, as they kind of navigate their way through this field and, and we, you know, have to then adapt what they've learned into whatever role they might come into. Yeah, I really, really like that. That's where your relationship building comes into place, you know, having conversations with the athletes, understanding um, basically what, what the, the cognitive load on or emotional load on that athlete on any given day is. And we always say it's not data-driven, it's data-informed, and we're really just trying to prepare ourselves and um, staff to make the best decisions with constantly fluid information in the moment. Um, and uh, I, I think I hear a lot of that um, and yeah. what you're alluding to. It's, it's awesome to hear that because um, I think we sometimes get, again, bad rap as a sports scientist that we um, can predict performance to the fifth decimal and, and all these things. But, um, yeah, really, it's much more complex than that. And, and really, um, predictions are ever-changing with every piece of information we gather through interactions with our athletes, with staff. And like you said, you know, a player might get chewed out right before training. Well, um, that in and of itself is an important piece of data to consider, so to speak. Um, so it's it, great to hear that. And to your point, um, with the physical parameters, I, I think, you know, in the recent um, World Cup analysis, I think it was pretty evident that those teams that were performing well or ended up going further in the tournament did not cover more high speed distance and, and things yeah. like that. And obviously there's more to the game than just running. Um, so it, it's great to hear that emphasis as well. Even something even as simple as, I mean, realistically, if you're in a long season and you're, um, you know, you, you know, the fatigue is, is an important piece of what you have to manage, then winning without running a lot is a skill in and of, of itself, right? You'd, you'd love to win a game and run less than you have to. You want to be able to run when you need to run, but ultimately you'd love to be able to, 
win games without having to fully exert yourselves physically um, because you might, you just can't do it Wednesday, Saturday for, you know, eight, 10 weeks in a row. Absolutely. And, that, and that's where those cognitive skills come in as well that you alluded to, you know, a player might be able to see space and recognize that a situation is on and not just run the action for the sake of running it. Um, you know, efficiency is obviously critical and, and, um, we, we've seen this in, in some athletes um, where they come from very pronounced um, European youth academies um, and then they get exposed to the collegiate game, which, um, you know, is very, very, very physical. And those are often the ones that, like I said, don't actually cover the most systems or cover actually the least systems. And, um, yeah, we, we have some anecdotal conversations around that, whether that, that is essentially efficiency and and things like that. So, yeah, very, very interesting to hear. Um, again, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time today. I know I took a lot from our conversation. I'm sure our listeners did too. Um, if anybody has additional questions for listening to this podcast, is it okay to share an email address or what would be the best way to contact you, social media handles, or anything like that? Yeah, I think the best way is just, I mean, you know, LinkedIn. Um, I try to answer, you know, most young people's young practitioners questions on LinkedIn. Um, and obviously I'm available on Twitter, the social media spaces. I think it's at Dave Tenney for both Instagram and uh, Twitter. So, you know, but normally I think LinkedIn is the best place to, to reach out. Awesome. Perfect. Well, I can only encourage everybody to do that. Um, you know, I've learned a lot from you um, and you've always been grateful with your time um, getting back to me as well. So um, personally, I want to say thanks for that as well. And um, yeah, Good luck with the rest of your season and, and thanks again for joining us today, Dave. Thanks, Felix, and good luck to you too. Thanks. Hello, Pitt.